This is episode 110 of the Rising Man podcast with Chief Philip Scott, Wopi Latanga. Greetings and blessings to you, friend, wherever you are in the world, listening to this transmission right now. I just want to begin by welcoming you to the Rising Man. My name is Jetty Azuma. If we're meeting for the first time, then let me introduce myself as the host of this podcast and the founder of the Rising Man movement. Here at the Rising Man, our mission is to initiate an entire generation of men so that our children have the leaders and examples to support them in the decades and centuries to come. None of this happens without community. None of this is possible without culture. So before we engage in our conversation today, let me invite you to become a greater part of the Rising Man family. All Rising Man content, events, and information is now living at risingman.org. So if you haven't visited there already, please go give it a shout today. Check it out. See everything we got going on. If you're a man without a men's circle, wait no longer. You can join the Rising Man Fire Circle today. For just $67 a month, you get access to your very own men's team, monthly training calls with me, guest presenters, and so much more. And if you're looking for men's initiations, gatherings, and trainings to prepare you to be the man you've always wanted to be, then go check out our other offerings over at risingman.org. All right, my guest for today is Chief Philip Scott. Philip has walked the native path for over 30 years, learning from and sanctioned by traditional medicine and holy people, tribal spiritual elders, shamans, and elders from several indigenous cultures. Annually sundancing in the Lakota tradition for over two decades, he is a ceremonial leader entrusted to share indigenous wisdom and traditional healing practices with the contemporary world. Interviewed both nationally and internationally on radio, television, and for newspapers, his life and experience have been featured in journals and books. In addition to directing and teaching the programs at the Institute in Northern California where he lives and which he founded in 1994, he maintains a private healing practice, performs ceremonies, lectures, conducts intensives, and leads pilgrimages worldwide. In this episode, we discussed the indigenous science that is designed to help human beings awaken and how rites of passage play a major role in this. Why expanding our definition of family is vital to raising a new healthy generation. And why a diversity of influences is also important and imperative for growth. We spoke about the differentiations between men and women and masculine and feminine from a tribal indigenous perspective. How we can heal from emasculation wounding. Why rites of passage will decrease acts of aggression against women and the earth. And how contemporary comforts are killing our men. We spoke about warriorship and that warriorship is about discovering what you are meant to do for the benefit of all. Why distrust of authority is commonplace, but not always helpful. The true meaning of impeccability was something we dove into, as well as accountability. Can you be counted on? And last but not least, we talked about entering into indigenous space and how it's best done by leading with respect, sensitivity, and compassion. Without further ado, Chief Philip Scott. Rising Man family, good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you're at. I have a very special man joining me here on the podcast today, a man by the name of Philip Scott. He also goes by the name Chief Black Horse. He's coming up from up in the Bay Area, up in San Francisco, where you just told me you're freezing your buns off and feeling the winter season as well. So, Philip, thanks for coming on here today and joining me. My pleasure. I didn't say I was freezing my buns off. You said you were freezing your buns oh, off. I, I thought you were. I, see, I thought we were on the same page. Maybe I guess. I, I guess I was just assuming that. I was looking for a little bit of simpatico around the cold weather. That's <laughs> really not all that cold. But hey, what are you gonna do? <laughs> I grew up in upstate New York, so I'm used to cold weather. So. I know. And I joke about this all the time because I used to be known as the guy who, because I went to school in upstate New York, I used to be the guy who walked oh, okay. around in shorts in the snowstorms in the wintertime with shorts and sandals, right. but I can't claim that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So that's, we'll call that California acclimatization, huh? <laughs> there we go. At its finest. At its finest. Gotten thinner blood now. <laughs> that's right. It's definitely thinned out. I got to work on that coming into 2020 here. 
But Chief, it's an honor to have you here on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation. And before you tell us a little bit more about who you are and the road that you've walked to be of service in the way that you are in the world, I'd like to ask you this question. What is the difference between a boy and a man? That's a beautiful question. Profound question, actually. So I would say a boy is born, a man is made. I believe that what characterizes our humanity are rites of passage. And I believe that we can't just automatically perceive ourselves as men once we achieve a particular kind of age. It requires cultivation, requires grooming, spiritual grooming. And the way that that's achieved are through rites of passage that have been handed down for millennia. We've had ancestors, you know, who have walked the path before. And there is a indigenous science to helping individuals, human beings awaken. And those rites of passage are the signposts for our journey. And those are not just specific to, you know, men, but to human beings. You know, also women have their rites of passage as well, from being girls into to young women. And so for me, there's a, a threshold, there's a transition through which a boy walks into becoming a young man. And it requires the support of other men who have made that journey before. So that for me is there's a transition, there's a threshold through which a boy passes, you know, and also I think that characterization between a boy and a man involves going back to the grooming piece because we are born through women. Our mothers give birth to us. And this is not just specific to indigenous cultures in North America, but around the world. The first seven years of a boy's journey is characterized by the nurturance of a woman. And around the age of seven or so is when that nurturance changes to a masculine responsibility, to fathers, uncles, grandfathers, right? Because there's only so much that a woman can provide a boy. And so it's really up to the responsibility of a boy's fathers, uncles, grandfathers, And I use those plural because in tribal cultures, you have more than one father and one uncle and or uncles and and grandfathers. And so the responsibility of guiding a boy into a man is the purview of the masculine. And there are rites of passage that characterize this transition in a very profound kind of way. So that that young man can never look back. We have to continue to look forward. That we let go of the boy to become the young man. So there's certain graces that are given to a boy that are not given to a young man based upon whatever culture that they are exposed to and grow up in. Yeah, it goes right along with the core message of The Rising Man. We've spoken a lot on this show with different guests about rites of passage, even discussing what that is, because there's still so many folks out there in this modern colonial world who have never even ventured an idea of what that means. And Mm -hmm. a couple things I want to ask you a little bit more about. You mentioned that around the age of seven is when it's important for a boy to start spending more time around the men is how I interpreted it, right? Getting some more of this masculine grooming. So you also said that it's not necessarily chronological according to age. So what are some of the indications that a boy is ready to spend more time with his uncles and his fathers? Mm, Well, that gauge is determined by the fathers and the uncles. You know, the things that they're looking for may be a certain kind of organic gravitation toward the masculine. It really does involve interactions, right? So the kind of relationships that are being forged as a boy, as they begin to, you know, there's kind of like a a subtle intrinsic rebellion. And I don't mean in an overt kind of way, you know, where the mother's nurturance isn't as, you know, needed for the boy, but it really is in one sense, it, it is a collective endeavor. So it's not that just the fathers and uncles and grandfathers are observing this phenomenon within the boy, but The mothers and the aunties and the grandmothers are also observing that it's time for the boy to be moved into the arena of more of the masculine. 
it, it really speaks to that the cultivation of a child is really a collective endeavor of all the elders present, and that's both male and female. So there's going to be tendencies to look for. And then the elders gather both, you know, male and female and say, you know, it's time for this young boy or young girl, in the case of the feminine, you know, to be spending more time with the elders of their own Mm -hmm. gender. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that it's, number one, it's a communal conversation. And which that alone is a whole podcast episode right there, right? Is talking about how we are raising (laughs) children in these isolated boxes of parenthood that I'm the sample size right here. My son has grown up inside the teepee and with aunties and uncles that show up for him like mothers and fathers. And my wife and I put a high value on that. And I'm also looking at my son who's four years old and some change. And some of what you're speaking of, I'm beginning to see inklings of. He definitely still requires the nurturance of his mother, but he's also much more inclined to want to spend time with his dad and to wrestle. And he's curious about when his dad is working with tools and building things and chopping wood and going on adventures. So I guess for the benefit of the audience, if there's other fathers out there or even mothers out there, Are there any other specific signs uh, behaviorally? You said a little bit about like the rebellion piece. Are there any other specific indicators we can highlight there? I think that what you just mentioned really speaks to this, that there's actually just a kind of organic gravitation toward tasks and responsibilities that you're doing that your son desires to emulate. And so in one sense, it's it's kind of really that simple, that there's just more of an interest in the tasks and the responsibilities that you are undertaking. Sometimes it means, you know, I want to, you know, the, the child may say, I want to spend more time with, with dad or you know, they don't have the language skills. You know, they're just reaching out for the father more. So these are kind of some of the signposts that, the, you know, the elders are looking for. I will say one thing in relationship to what you mentioned earlier. You know, I have a model that nuclear families create nuclear explosions because that is just one constellation. And if you see the way that more tribal nations are configured in terms of relationally, you know, you do have the family unit, but it's also embedded in a much larger matrix where the entire village, the entire nation is raising the children. And so it minimizes enmeshment and projection. And so you get far less toxicity when you have that kind of relationship that's more extended. I think there's far too much focus on uh, nuclear families in our Western colonized world at great detriment. You know, myself also being the <laughs> a lot of collateral damage as a result of that level of insularity. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And just from a parent's perspective, it's a lot of work to take on with just two people. <laughs> you know, I mean, even it's it's so limited. As wonderful as my wife is, and as I think I'm a pretty solid guy walking this earth, you know, there's only so much that we can give our son. And so for him to have a diversity of wisdom, experiences, skill sets to draw from, it just amplifies what he gets in his life. And I see that with a lot of kids that we're, it's almost like we're cloning people by raising them in such an insular environment. It's cliche, but they say, well, you're destined to become your mother or your father, especially if that's all you ever know and all you ever see. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a a lack of enrichment, right? I mean, if we understand that every single soul, regardless of gender, comes here to this planet to fulfill original instructions, you know, and that's their destiny, that's their mission and purpose for hmm, arriving here on this earth, you know, then the parents are not the genuine parents, right? That the genuine parents are Mother Earth and Father Sky. Those are your actual parents who have invoked that soul here for a purpose that we don't necessarily comprehend. And so it's the responsibility of the parents, of the biological parents, and the extended clan surrounding these children to help them remember what they're here to do. And so a multiplicity of perspectives and a, shall we say, a supportive nurturing environment that the elders provide allows that child to remember and foster the strength, resiliency, confidence to do the work that they've been brought here to do. That, for me, is what Indigenous understanding is about, right? To help people remember their original instructions. And so having the carbon copy of a child become exactly like what the parent's agenda is, 
is actually a travesty because it undermines what the original instructions of that child may be. Yeah, which I agree with that wholeheartedly because there's so much inherent wisdom and innate wisdom in these children when they come through. And I even have to watch myself not to try and restrict or confine or control what my son and my daughter are expressing so naturally. And I think like you've alluded to, more of an indigenous, more of a tribal way of raising children is meant to stoke those fires and to teach them how to tend their fires is the way I think of it, to teach them how to tend the fire that they were given, that they came into this life with, instead of, no, you do it this way. You tend this fire, not the one that you came in with. I want to migrate a little bit from that because I think that's such a great conversation. And I'm also interested in specifically coming from more of an indigenous and tribal background. We talk about man and woman. And ever since I started this podcast, I realized that there's man and woman, there's male and female, there's masculine and feminine. So is there a differentiation or an assignment for those different words in the tribal way that is used as a reference point for how people identify themselves? Okay, so what I would say is that it's not polarized as much as we often think. In terms of traditional cultures, there's an identification with not just masculine and feminine. There's an identity that can be both. There's an identity that can be neither. I think it really expands the conversation quite a bit when we understand that regardless of what your gender is and the identification, that you have medicine, right? There is a medicine for the masculine. There's a medicine for the feminine. There's a medicine for those that identify in a different kind of way. And they each have very specific responsibilities within a village, within a ceremony. And I think it's really about coming to that level of respect that however you identify, you have medicine, right? And that's also going to be based upon certain cultural values, right? So how, say, a boy is raised in the Aboriginal bush is going to be different than necessarily in North America. But there's a set of values that the elders and the fathers and the grandfathers will instill in that boy to uphold and fulfill the responsibilities of what that medicine is for that gender. And, you know, it's very difficult to universalize any of this because it's going to be very specific to what that culture is. I mean, even within North America, when the visitors, as I call them, arrived here, there were over 550 distinct nations here in North America alone, and each with their own language, culture, cosmology, ceremonial protocols, etc. So, you know, what we can speak to is that there's an honoring of the medicine of each gender and each identity, you know. And, you know, I think also about people that identify as the other, you know, rather than the gender that was biologically granted to them. That there are ceremonies in the Sundance, for example, where there's a place for individuals that don't identify in the same kind of way in terms of how they interact with the Sundance tree and what they do as a part of the ceremony. So we have to be very careful about how we're going to define distinct roles, because I think that's part of the challenge that we're facing in our contemporary world, in that I think a lot of the values that we assign to each gender are quite contrived and actually very unhealthy. That's why I do believe that, you know, men can be nurturing and, you know, women can be strong. And so we have these values, you know, that are dichotomous, you know, and polarized. And so that's causing the emasculation of men. And I think it's quite problematic, I mean, because we actually embody all of these qualities. We're really talking about qualities that are human rather than just assigned to one specific gender. And that's, I think, very unhealthy, right? I've seen with you and myself in the church, you know, the Native American church, you know, we're loving and nurturing and kind and also strong and get the work done. And so to say that only women can be nurturing or soft or that they're not allowed to be strong, I think is really unhealthy because it doesn't embrace the totality of our humanity. Right. I agree. And that's what I've come to find in these past two years of researching the male and the masculine condition on this planet is that in many circumstances, there's not even room available 
for a man, a human, to express himself fully and honestly and authentically because it's not accepted. There's no room for it in the social circles that he finds himself in. And my experience in the indigenous ways is that, like you said, there's not as much emphasis on assignment of these categories or characteristics, but more an openness to what is the gift that you came here to carry? What is the gift that you wield? Because there's room for all of that in this circle. There's room for all of that around this tree. And so when I asked you if there was a message on your heart, you said you wanted to speak to the emasculation of men. And so there's this idea of the over-feminization of men that has reduced masculine expression. But then you were also just talking about the room that there needs to be for men to also be nurturing and gentle and soft when called upon. So what is your belief around what we need as a culture and as a society to support our men the best and thus support the community? I believe that it's important for kind of a disintegration of these polarized perceptions and qualities and characteristics that the genders have. And I think that what I see happening in our current society is the focus only on the softness and the femininity rather than allowing a man to be strong and perhaps not necessarily as emotionally expressive because they're focused on something else. You know, there's a particular kind of energy that I do see in the masculine, which has to do with kind of a fierce intensity and focus. We're able to accomplish tasks, which isn't to say that women can't accomplish tasks either, but I'm just saying in terms of the medicine of the masculine, there's definitely an intent, you know, to accomplish things. And oftentimes that's our Western society doesn't really honor that. Or even the intensity of a focus is perceived as aggression. <laughs> right. Right. That's a huge one. And, um, and I'm not actually trying to say that there isn't a sense of violence and aggression. I think actually, you know, turning this around again, back to rites of passage, I think that when there are rites of passage, then there's going to be a decrease in the amount of violence and aggression toward women and toward the world in general and the earth. Talk about that for a second, because I agree with you. And I'd like to hear your idea of how rites of passage leads directly to that outcome. So there's a certain kind of energy that in childhood needs to learn to be channeled. And a rite of passage is a conduit through which that energy can be directed. And the container is held by the ancestors. For me, rites of passage, it's getting a license when you're 16 is not a rite of passage, as far as I'm concerned. It may be a, a badge of honor that you achieve in the Western colonial world, but when I'm talking about rites of passage, I'm talking about ceremony specifically. And that involves an ordeal. It involves some kind of endurance that is required from that, in this case, boy, which also often involves terror because they're being stripped away of the cloak of boyhood to move into the responsibility of what a young man is in their culture. So the medicine people, particularly men in this case, because a man can initiate a boy, a woman cannot initiate a boy any more than a man cannot initiate a girl into womanhood. And so that's why it's important to make sure that you have a village or you have a collective of people to help support, raise your children effectively. But, you know, women can witness the transformation of that boy, but they cannot be directly involved, i.e. facilitating the ceremony because they don't have a reference point for how to be a man in our culture any more than a man has a reference point for how to be a woman in our culture. So that's the respect that you afford each gender. But, you know, so the, the grandfathers, the fathers, the uncles, you know, there's going to be some man who is going to preside over a ceremony. And that, in, with the invocation of the ancestors, they hold the container, right, through which this boy is transformed into a young man and the values of that culture are instilled upon him. And a key aspect of this afterward is that everybody in the village no longer treats that young man as a boy, that he actually is a young man with the responsibilities that come with that role and position in the community. Without that, right? So if you still have people in the community they're addressing as a boy, then it actually, he'll revert back or move forward. And so that ceremony becomes a threshold through which that boy passes into young manhood. 
and he is unable to look back. And the community makes sure that he keeps his eyes moving in a direction toward his new destiny. Whatever those values may be, as I said, it's going to be based upon each culture and what is expected of that young man in the culture that he is embedded in. But ultimately, it involves some kind of fear, some kind of ordeal. You know, I think about, for example, the lawmen of the Aboriginal people in Australia. I had colleagues that shared with me the initiatory practice for uh, young boys. You know, and the lawmen come into a village and they will call the boys that are ready. And of course, it's up to the community there to determine the readiness of the boy, as we mentioned earlier, right? And the lawmen come in to call the boys and take them out into the bush. And all of the community is in collusion with this. And so the women are screaming and yelling, saying, no, don't take my boy. And of course, that just jacks up the adrenaline and the testosterone and the fear, right? You know, and maybe... The year or two before, another boy saw his older brother go off into the bush with the lawman, and he comes back a different man, right? And so the young boys are then, through an ordeal, taken out into the bush and taught how to be Aboriginal young men and what is involved with that process. And there used to be sacrifices that had to be made, right? And that's another important piece of this puzzle is that any kind of rite of passage involves a sacrifice. And I don't necessarily mean blood, but it means that there's a release of something that may have been prized or important to them that they no longer can have anymore. And it's not just metaphorical as in a loss of use. You know, it's actually something that could be very profound. In the case of Aboriginal cultures, there was the letting of blood. And I've seen this in the Sundance as well, you know, that a family or community will say, my young son is ready to walk into the mystery circle. And maybe they spend a few years inside the mystery circle without piercing. And then eventually the elders will say, yep, this is the year for this young man to pierce or this boy to pierce. And then he's taken to the bison robe and he has his flesh pierced with these skewers of bone or wood or antler placed into his flesh and he's attached to the tree of life. And he pulls against the tree of life until his flesh tears. And then he is walked around in the mystery circle and he's celebrated for that sacrifice. At that point, that boy has just become a young man mm. in the sacrifice of his body. I just want to pause for a second because you've spoken so many beautiful things about rites of passage and also given a lot of context for that. I'm remembering that there's a lot of folks who won't have an understanding of what this really is and what we're talking about here. And so just to take a half a step back, one of the things that really jumps out to me, this different way of raising children that requires us to have a greater length of vision, a greater scope of what a human can become and what a human can do with their life. Rites of Passage has been in my awareness field for the past eight years, and I'm still developing an understanding and a context for it. So I know that one of the first things that struck me was I, like every other being, have a unique purpose and a unique medicine, a gift, a service to bring forth on this planet. And that part of my life is unfolding and revealing what that gift is. And there's pivotal moments where I can get almost like a really tuned in, really focused amplification of clarity of what that is. So a ceremony, a rite of passage that will reveal more to me in a specific moment. And so even just this idea of what you said about the Aboriginal peoples, where they take their children from the village and generate almost this elective trauma <laughs> for these boys, right? This chosen ordeal and traumatic event in their life, because that's what life is going to hand us anyway, is a series of these traumatic events and challenges that we can't control. And how different that is in contrast to this more modern society where we do almost everything we can to protect our children from hardship. And I think that's the biggest take-home message that I've gotten, especially my own journey with rites of passage and now my conscious raising of my children, I know that I'm not going to be able to protect them from challenges and rigors of life. And I don't want to, because I know that that's what reveals character and that's what gives them what they need to be the people that they came here to be. So 
I just wanted to mirror that back because as somebody who is still really accumulating a deeper and deeper understanding and appreciation for what this way of living is, it's such a stark contrast to the way many people operate in our society. Yeah, very well expressed, Jenny. I think that I would be careful about using the word trauma around rites of passage. Ordeal, yes. Trauma, no. I think actually I believe that rites of passage do just the opposite in that, as you said, rightly so, we're not able to safeguard our children from the vicissitudes of life, from the challenges that they will inevitably encounter. But what ceremony and rites of passage do is provide us with tools to navigate those challenges effectively and gracefully. And I believe personally that in our quest for, in the Western civilization, for comfort, that we've gotten a little soft around the spiritual middle, I call it. Our elders were resilient. They were strong. And I'm not just, you know, I'm talking about across the world, you know, because there was a way to live in the natural world that was challenging. And yet all indigenous peoples around the world had the fortitude and the resiliency to survive. And I see this as a, you know, our contemporary culture with its focus on comfort and sleep that we've gotten a little soft and don't necessarily have the tools any longer to endure with the same degree of success. You know, and I see that in reflection with our youth. Suicide rates are increasing astronomically amongst our youth. So I believe that that's a reflection that we're not providing our youth with the tools to be able to endure the challenges of life. A lot of children are also cutting themselves, which I see as a metaphor for the kind of vicious psychological warfare we perpetrate on ourselves and the lack of rites of passage to give children the ability to endure whatever will come their way in this life, you know. And it applies, you know, the word I use is awakened warriorship, right? That what I endeavor to teach and practice through these indigenous ways of life have to do with undermining our compulsion for sleep. And I'm not talking about sleeping as in resting. I'm talking about the lack of awareness, you know, the domestication of ourselves. And so to actively fight against this slumber, you know, that is wanting to keep us down as a people. And I think there's a significant difference between warriorship and being a soldier for that reason. You know, the point is, as you mentioned earlier, to foster our children to become who they're meant to be. And for me, that's the essence of warriorship, right? We're not creating carbon copies of people, right? But that we honor the intrinsic uniqueness of every single being on this planet and help them to discover what they're meant to do for the benefit of all of us. I look at the warriors of an indigenous cultures, and they don't wear the same uniform. They're all very unique in terms of their expression, also the animal allies that they align with that is depicted on their shields and on their regalia. They're very much connected to their own dream and vision, and then they come together in solidarity to fight a common cause. Right? versus the carbon-copied soldier that conforms rather than to listen to the counsel of their elders or their ancestors. Yeah. Wow, I appreciate the reframe on that because the way you described leaving out the word trauma and really focusing more on the ordeal, I think, is more descriptive of what it really is. And we using the word trauma casted a little bit of a different light on what these ceremonies are because they are so beautiful. I've seen teenage boys piercing for the first time inside the mystery circle and it brings tears to my eyes man like on a very instinctive multi-generational level i feel the power of seeing a boy in our community become a man and the pride that not just that family not just that mother that father that grandfather grandmother take but all of us in seeing one of our youngers cross that threshold with the support of their community it's like wow that's what it's all about to me And so asking you, as we kind of start to pull this whole conversation together, looking at the big picture, we live in a world where we're over, I think we're almost over 8 billion people now on this planet. 
and many of whom don't have a connection to some of these foundational elements of indigenous wisdom, connection to the elements, connection to ancestry. What do you see as the next step forward for this generation that's coming into our own? And then especially the men of this generation, what do you see as our responsibility and also the opportunity that we have? Really appreciate your question, Steady. I'm so deeply informed by your own life experience as well. I just want to honor what you're doing, even to allow these conversations to be had, which is really important nowadays. I would answer by saying that I think it's important for the young men who are listening to seek out elders and medicine people, to be humble enough to learn. I think about the martial arts, for example. And when you enter, you know, before you walk into the dojo, you bow. You bow to the founder of the lineage, whichever martial art you're practicing. You, you bow to your sensei, and then you bow to your peers, and you walk inside with humility. And that bow is a gesture of humility and respect. And I see nowadays so much rebellion you know, amongst young men, you know, because there aren't that rights of, those rites of passage, so they're angry, right? They don't have that channel that I talked about to be able to redirect that energy in a constructive way. So to seek out older men, men who are their elders, right? Because the reason why there are gangs in our world is because there's such a deep craving in our DNA, and DNA in this case is descendants and ancestors, which is from a Lakota activist and poet, John Trudeau. Uh, DNA is descendants and ancestors. So it's so deeply embedded in us, these cravings for rites of passage, that if they're not available in the environment around us, we will endeavor to create them ourselves. And that's what gangs are. People of the same vibration or level of experience can initiate you. You need to have the elders who have walked the path before. So I really encourage your listeners to locate elders, medicine people, because we're still around. And many of us are more than willing to share. And you bring respect and humility to the table and you begin to learn. You undertake the trials and the tribulations of what that learning are. Going on a traditional, what we call hamblecha, vision quest, right? Four days, three nights or four nights, no food, no water, no sleep, right? Praying, humbling yourself, receiving communion with the, with the natural world and the ancestors, right? And this is really going to ensure the survival of our species, as far as I'm concerned, is being able to remember our intrinsic indigenousness, right? So it's about decolonizing ourselves, because that's, for me, the key to freeing ourselves from domestication. And so seeking out mentors and teachers whom you can learn from, who you can be humble with, to glean this knowledge before, so it's not lost, so that it can be passed on to future generations, right? And I will tell you that an apprenticeship with a medicine person, it's going to take around 10 years of your life, right? So you got to cultivate patience as well. You know, when I walked onto the land for my first Sundance, the medicine man there looked at me and said, in about 10 years, you'll be able to run this ceremony yourself. And that's what it takes. You know, it's like, we have that understanding in the medicine, in, in modern medicine, it takes about eight to 10 years to become a bona fide physician, right? Well, rites of passage and ceremony are indigenous medicine ways, and it's going to require that amount of time to be able to gain that level of knowledge, praxis, and mastery. And so, therefore, it's also about learning in our Western colonized world where everything is so immediate to be able to slow down and be patient because people want things far too fast. And the last thing you want is gaps in your knowledge and experience, which will be costly to yourself and your loved ones and the people that you are endeavoring to serve. So I think finding the elders and the medicine people whom you trust, whom you're willing to surrender to, not because you are going to compromise your authority, but that you're willing to learn from, right? So for me, this is often a common motif with my own students. And what I say is that you're willing to surrender your authority, but not your autonomy, right? So you have the capacity to make choices, right? We're all endowed with free will. You can choose. 
right? But if you're wanting to learn something, you have to empty yourself. You've got to be willing to be humble to learn something, right? If you think you know more than your mentor or your teacher, then you're going to be lost. And this is the respect that we bring to our elders as well, right? Individuals that have walked the path longer than us. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they may be older than you, but if you're on a path, you know, and you're, you're starting off on a path and there's someone that's been on the path longer than you, but still is chronologically younger, then they're still your elder technically in relationship to the path. So it's about being able to learn from those who have greater experience than yourself. Yeah. And that's the key to making sure that this knowledge gets passed on to the future. I love the way that you shared that there. I can't wait to go back and listen to this myself just because there's <laughs> you have a great way of simplifying uh, something that I'm still finding a way to express, to express as clearly and eloquently as you did. Because in my assessment, that's exactly what the world needs right now is for us to reorganize and rearrange ourselves around community and tradition. Now, whether you use the word tribe, whether you use the word clan, family, village, whatever it is, I think it's all representative of these smaller cohorts of people who have a common enough vision and value system that we can function as one unit with different components and different parts. And so I'm just really inspired by what you said. It reignites that flame that I have because that's what I'm committed to cultivating for my family, for my people, our children, my little nieces and nephews too. And, you know, as we start to bring this to a close, there's one more piece that I think would be really valuable for people to hear from you. I mentioned this in your bio, but you are a man of mixed ethnicity who has become a a leader in the indigenous ways and in the tribal ceremonial ways. So I know there's a lot of folks out there who they're hearing words like Sundance, medicine ceremonies, the Red Road, and they don't have any idea how to find their way in. Because there's this belief that, well, I'm not native by blood, so I'm not welcome in that space. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could just speak a little bit about your experience and also how folks Mm -hmm. who are interested in this can find their way in. Sure. I would like to say just one thing before we walk down that road, which is that I think that unjustifiably so, there's a lot of people in this world who are disenchanted with the leadership of the world because this leadership is characterized by self-absorption. And that's why people are distrustful of authority. And also going back to the nuclear families creating nuclear explosions, right? So if you have a family dynamic that's toxic, and then you see the leaders of the world that are not walking with integrity and impeccability and selfless service, which is ultimately what I see the leaders of the world requiring to be, then naturally you're going to be distrustful. And so that's why you really have to exercise discernment and make sure that you vet the individual that you want to learn from so that you can engender that level of trust so that you can open up to learn and grow. Because for me, to be a leader in this world requires a degree of impeccability, which means that you do your best. You really, you, you strive for excellence in everything you do so that you can be worthy of emulation. And then the other is integrity, to walk your talk. You know, And I think for me, these are also hallmarks of a human being, but particularly being a man, you know, being accountable, being responsible. And I use those words, you know, with great deliberation, because for me, to be accountable is the ability to be counted on. Can I count on you? Can you watch my back? Can I watch your back in this world that is challenging, you know, to align myself with others and to be responsible? Also, the ability to respond in all situations at any time, you know, so I'm going to be cultivating courage, you know, which in courage comes from the French occur, which is heart, you know, to live and work from the heart. And so look for these individuals in your life so that they can guide you to live from your heart as a man. So to answer your question, you know, I used that discernment myself because I was blessed with dream and vision to seek out medicine people. So I apprenticed with full bloods and who could transcend race that were not caught in their own prejudice and could see my heart. And they trained me and it was literal blood, sweat and tears. And through dream and vision, I was brought to a Sundance and began Sundancing. It's been 28 years now. This will be my 29th year uh, Sundancing. And through this road, I was introduced to the Native American church and 
I've had the privilege of working with, you know, full blood indigenous people who were willing to share this way with everyone. You know, my Lakota mother from Pine Ridge, she would say that this way is an indigenous way, or it's a way of the human being, and we're all five-fingered ones. So therefore, we all have the right to walk the red road of life, the indigenous way. And so she was, uh, as all my my medicine teachers have, been most generous with sharing these ways to ensure that they could be passed on to the future. That's how I was called. I don't believe that you select a path. I believe the path beckons you and you follow it with your heart. And so you know, I started having dreams when I was six years old and had a near-death experience when I was seven and was being instructed in my dreams by indigenous elders, full-bloods. And then, so I made a commitment to walk the red road when I was 17, and I've been on that road ever since. I will say that I never asked to be a leader that my teachers recognizes in me. I was asked by communities to serve and with the blessings of my elders and them granting me permission to do so, I proceeded. And so for me, this is a path of humility, you know, and of selfless service. It's not about my desires, my agenda. It's more about, as Frank Fools Crow would say, becoming a hollow bone. I wish to be an instrument in the relief of suffering in this world. And the tools that have been provided to me have been shared with from the indigenous people, with the indigenous wisdom and tools that are available to people on this planet when they walk with a sincere and humble pace. And so I was instructed to, I think it was my third Sundance, where the ancestors came to me uh, during the dance and instructed me to create a center, a place for the preservation and dissemination, obviously respectfully, and protection of indigenous ceremonial ways of life. And so that's how Ancestral Voice Institute for Indigenous Lifeways came into existence. My altars are open to all people. There's no discrimination here because we are all mitakuye oyasim, which is a Lakota phrase for related. We are all related. You know, you're my family. So that's how I regard that. And it's not just an intellectual concept. It's my way of life and it's what's in my cells. So we are all in this together as a humanity, and either we will collectively awaken or we will cause the demise of ourselves and many species around us. The earth is going to survive. She has survived for billions of years. So that's really not the issue. The question becomes, what is our legacy? And all of our relations on this planet, some of our relations have just forgotten how to be in alignment and harmony with the nature, you know, with the natural world, with the natural cycles, and with the ancestors. So our responsibility is to help our relations to remember. And that's what we do here is by offering traditional ceremonies, rites of passage, you know, opportunities for people to heal and receive doctoring from their own intergenerational trauma and wounding, which we are all exposed to as human beings and uh, to work together in solidarity for our future, for seven generations to thrive upon this earth, you know, for the welfare of our children and all beings upon this planet. Yes, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here for. And just to close the loop on that last question I had for you, my own experience as someone who was not born into these ways, and I don't have any native blood, at least not native to the Americas. My father's family's from Japan and my mother's family's from Italy and the Middle East. I found that in order to step into this world and to be received, there's just a reverence and a curiosity, at least in my experience, has been identified and acknowledged by people like yourself and other elders, teachers in these communities. Because I don't think it's exclusive across the board, but much like what you said in reference to your Lakota mom, there's an acknowledgement that this is the wisdom of humans and that anybody who's carrying that wisdom has an inherent responsibility to pass it forward because that's about the perpetuation of our species in a good way, in the beauty way. And that's not just that, you know, there's people who have fought and who have died and shed blood and shed tears and gone through tremendous hardships in order to preserve these sacred ways. So it's not given away 
lightly. It's not given away at all. It's passed forward with respect and reverence that it is due. So when it's met with that same level of reverence, of service, of curiosity is a big word I tend to carry because just acknowledging that I don't know and a willingness to learn that also goes along with that, in my experience, has always been well-received. And so I always like to put that into the space because I know for me, who had similar experiences to you as a child, I mean, I remember when I was five years old of catching songs that I had no reference point for and that have stuck with me my whole life. I have no idea where they came from, but they're literally songs that sound like they're in some sort of native tongue, but I don't know where that comes from. I've had those experiences, and so my soul has drawn me to these ways even though logically or ethnically, there's no course that explains that for me. But, you know, following my soul's path and asking for permission and being really willing to learn and to be reverent in those spaces has allowed me to meet people like yourself and other amazing folks who are walking this planet and disseminating this information in a good way. Yeah. So I just want to put that out there for anybody who is called in that same way. Well, that reverence is, you know, for me, that's the humility. That's the deep respect that you bring and appreciation. And for me, that is the sincerity. They know how to track. They can see who's sincere and who is open and curious and willing to learn, as you mentioned. You know, And I think it's really important to underscore what you shared, which is that it's not a privilege or an entitlement, but that you have to earn the right to participate. And you do that through your sincerity and through your commitment. Because there is a history and a painful one. And so it's, it's a tremendous act of generosity for the indigenous peoples of this world to share their ways of life with those that may not necessarily be of the same blood. And I see this as a tremendous gift that has been offered to myself as well. And therefore, it's important to be sensitive to the history of what has transpired in this nation, as well as elsewhere. I mean, the the genocide of indigenous peoples is a global catastrophe and in happening as we speak, you know, uh, with many indigenous nations that are still under siege and threat, their way of life in jeopardy. And so that when, when people of not that particular nation or blood are able to participate, to be cognizant of the history and to come in with that level of sensitivity and respect, I think that's a really key and critical piece to be able to fully participate with awareness and with respect and sensitivity and compassion. Mm. Beautifully said, Chief. I know that you and I could go on talking about this for, for hours and hours and hours. And, and yet yeah. we must put a punctuation mark on this chapter and make room for another one in the future. Before we wrap up, I have a couple of lightning round style questions where I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. I want you to just give me your you know, quick answer on that. And then we'll give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you and get to work with you if they're interested. Sound good? Sweet. Yeah, sounds perfect. All right. So what is one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew back when you were 18? Oh, boy. Wow. Lightning round. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a challenging one. Let's see. That the world does not revolve around myself. Oof. That's it right there, man. <laughs> That's five tons of wisdom right on you. Okay, so let me ask you one more. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Well, I believe that I kind of articulated some of the important values, but I'd have to say of all the ones that I say integrity, walking your talk, you know, I think that is really critical as a man that because it engenders trust you know in others so for me one solidness as a man is determined by whether you follow through whether your words are congruent with your actions that's the one right there integrity is top of the list for me anyone who's listened to this you guys have heard me talk about this a lot and i always say what would the world look like if we had a whole world full of men who did what they said, <laughs> like you said, whose words were congruent <laughs> with their actions or vice versa. Like, wow, you know, I think a lot of problems go away if we just did that. <laughs> so thank I you. Agree. I think it's an important value to have. Okay. Last but not least, where can people follow you, find you, connect with you to take this conversation deeper? Well, there's several ways to communicate with me. 
individuals can call me at 415-310-0981. That's 415-310-0981. That's my mobile phone. Uh, they can also text me. That's actually probably the most effective way to get a hold of me because I am on the road doing a lot of ceremonies and pilgrimages these days. Another means to communicate is via email, and that's philip, P-H-I-L-L-I-P, at ancestralvoice.org, and that's philip at ancestralvoice.org. Email, not the most effective ways to reach me these days, but it is, I do check it periodically. They're welcome to go to my website, www.ancestralvoice.org, and that's voice singular, not voice says. So uh, www.ancestralvoice.org. And I also have a Facebook page, which is Ancestral Voice. There, as I said, my ceremonies are open to everyone. Individuals can contact me at any time. If I can be of service to them in their own healing or counseling, they're certainly welcome to contact me. And uh, as I said, all people are welcome to uh, pray at my altars and to learn from me. And I do accept apprentices. Uh, There's individuals who will study with me anywhere from one year up to 10 years, depending on what their aspirations and dreams are. So if I can support people on their journey of awakening, it's my honor to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Chief. We'll make sure we put up all that information in the show notes for this episode. And just want to say how deeply grateful and also deeply honored I am that you would ask to have this conversation with me. It was one that I was already gearing up to invite you into, but to have you ask to contribute to this conversation and to bring your wisdom to the space in such a genuine and integral way. You know, anyone who's getting to hear from you and about you for the first time, I can say that you represent yourself consistently, regardless of the platform, regardless of the circumstances in the time that I've known you. So Thank you for being that kind of man as an example for me and for all other men. And thank you for bringing your gifts and your wisdom to the table for whoever's out there listening in right now. Well, it's my pleasure, Jetty. You know, I have a lot of deep love and respect for you. And I'm honored that you trust myself and the altars that I carry to support you and your prayers. And it's been an honor to meet your family. And I believe in the work that you're doing. I think it's extraordinarily valuable and important for this platform for men to have a place in order to explore what it means to be a man in this world, in this contemporary world. We're in very rich and challenging times, and it's necessary for us to come together as men for the future that awaits us. So I believe in you and what you're doing, and you have my admiration and support. Well, thank you very much, Chief. That means a lot. And we'll just have to jump in and do another chapter further down the road. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I look forward to that. So lots of blessings in this winter of dreaming. And may the dreams and the visions come strong in this season for you and for your family. Likewise, Chief. Same to you. I truly, truly, truly enjoyed this conversation. Philip is one of those men that I could talk to all day just to glean the wisdom that he has and to swap ideas and philosophies about men, masculinity, the state of the world, community, growth, leadership, and spirituality. I've gotten to experience Philip in ceremony, in conversation, and one thing I can say about him is that he is consistent in his message, in his values, in the way that he walks in the world. His his walk backs up his talk, and he doesn't have to talk all that much. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I encourage you to go and check out the work that Chief Philip Scott is doing. As always, we will put the show notes with all the links and resources for Chief and his work up at risingman.org. And you can catch all the other information for every other episode at risingman.org as well. While you're over there, make sure you sign up for our Rising Man Fire Circle so you can be a part of our growing community of men that is stretching worldwide, touching five continents now, and with men from all different backgrounds, creeds, cultures, communing together for this one singular mission of becoming the best men that we can be. So join us there. You can get information for our fire circles, for our compass initiation groups, and everything else that we're doing at risingman.org. Please subscribe and follow us on the podcast app of your choice, wherever you choose to listen to us. If they allow you to hit it with a heart, hit it with a like, hit it with a rating or a review. 
please do so so that we can find out exactly how the rising man is landing for you check us out on instagram at rising man movement and over at our new youtube channel the link is youtube.com slash the rising man movement go check it out today because we're putting up videos for every single one of our monday morning meditation episodes so you got that visual to match the audio that you've been getting from the podcast for a long time now so please go check that out subscribe while you're over there big shout outs to my power team julian subic mark rose rowan tyne and the sean offenbach grateful for you fellas thank you so much for all the hard work you guys have been putting into the rising man since day one coming up on two years now this this summer will be two years since we put the full power team together so thank you guys and until next time rise up and claim your destiny